0: Jennifer here. I am a busy mom who has a full-time job, a ton of commitments, and oh yeah, this little thing called the Art Curious Podcast. A reality where I'm eating cereal for dinner more frequently than I usually would admit. I hopped on the meal kit bandwagon, but found that I still had to do a lot of prepping and organizing. Dinners that were advertised as ready to eat in 30 minutes or less were really taking me closer to an hour to get on the table. What could I do if I wanted something easy, quick, and healthy in the comfort of my own home? 80Fresh is a delivery service based on the East Coast that offers delicious, fresh, and healthy meals in convenient kit delivery. I know you're busy too, so you're going to want to try 80Fresh. And right now, Art Curious listeners can get a special discount by using the offer code ARTCURIOUS, all one word. That'll get you 20% off of any order for first-time customers. That's the number 80Fresh.com. Promo code Art Curious. one word, 80Fresh. Tasty, healthy, simple. I can't remember the first time I saw a reproduction of a portrait of Marie Antoinette, the much-maligned Queen of France and wife to King Louis XVI. It seems like she was everywhere in the history books that I read in school growing up, Hers is a face that is fairly recognizable—that high forehead, the tiny pursed lips, the overly coiffed gray wig. But I didn't think too much about her, either as a historical figure or as a subject of oil portraits. That is, until I saw one particular image of her. Instead of a picture of the queen standing alone in all her finery, here she was joined by three others—her children daughter Marie Therese and her sons Louis Charles and Louis Joseph. Marie Therese is leaning against her mother, gazing up at her adoringly and gripping Marie Antoinette's red velvet decked arm. Her youngest son, still a toddler, sits on her lap while her eldest boy looks directly back at us, the viewers. He does so with a purpose. While staring at us, He sweeps back a swath of black cloth draped over an empty crib. This was the bed of his baby sister, Sophie, who died while the portrait was in process. She was not even a year old. Looking back at the queen, all of a sudden, I see her differently. She meets the viewer's gaze with a stare that is unchallenging and calm. I see her as someone who cares very much, who loves her children as we all do and who has had to deal with unspeakable loss. And mostly, I see her as sorrowful, again, with very good reason. I see her not as a frivolous or careless woman. Suddenly, she's wonderfully human. What a marvelous spin and an important piece of propaganda, though eventually it would be rather unconvincing to the public. But what is even more marvelous to me is the backstory of the artist who created it because the painter who was chosen to portray the highest woman in the land was another woman. Talk about a revolution. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. They might remember childhood field trips to museums stuffed with cranky old women, deathly silent galleries, and dusty golden frames hanging on the wall. But sometimes, the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or even more fun than you can imagine. Art history is full of murder, intrigue, feisty women, rebellious men, crime, insanity, so much more. And today, we are going to talk about one of the most staggeringly successful and crazy lucky artists of the 18th century, Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history, this is the Art Curious Podcast. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Some of the earliest examples of art, and sculpture in particular, are pure representations of the female form. You see this in cave paintings and sculptures from tens of thousands of years before the modern era. Such works exaggerate the biological aspect of women, minimizing anything but their essential reproductive qualities. As we move through time, however, such totems gave way to more elegant forms of expression, ones where artists attempted to create visions of what constituted the idea of femininity. When we contemplate representation of women throughout art history, we might think of beauty, of grace, motherhood, of being a wife. But we also can fall into the trap of seeing women as part of the dichotomy of the virginal, pure angel, or of the sullied, fallen woman. The ideals of womanhood are vast, and thus, so is the definition, and so are the countless artworks that represent it. If we take a moment to consider some of the world's most celebrated images of women, we find that they have something in common besides the gender of their subject matter. The artists who created them, of course, were almost always men. The journey from woman as subject and muse to women as artists in their own right has not been a short or an easy road. The great news is that art historians from the past few decades have eagerly and judiciously sought to rewrite portions of the art historical canon to accommodate women who had been subsequently forgotten or dismissed, seen as second-class creators with lesser experience, lesser talent, or limited works of note. And many of these women artists were prolific in their representations of themselves, as well as other women in their social classes, and were savvy enough to identify themselves as artists, as well as ladies. Elizabeth vigee Lebrun is one of these highly skilled women who successfully towed the line and broke out, incredibly, from the confines of her gender to rise among the ranks of the greatest artists of her time. Marie-Louise Elizabeth Vigée was born in Paris on April 16, 1755. Right off the bat, She had a couple of big things going for her that would highly influence her future. First of all, her family wasn't rich, but they had money, enough to get by. And second, her father, Louis Viget, was a painter himself, a moderately successful one who was able to pass on his interests and know-how to his daughter, Elizabeth. It seems that her father was rather successful in this endeavor because by the age of six, according to her memoirs, she was already doodling all over the walls of her convent school and subsequently getting in lots of trouble for it. As she recalled later in life, her father recognized her talent early. She wrote, quote, At seven or eight, I remember, I made a picture by lamplight of a man with a beard, which I have kept until this very day. When my father saw it, he went into transports of joy, exclaiming, You will be a painter, my child, if there ever was one. Elizabeth continued at school until she was about 11 years old. Now, coming from the perspective of the 21st century, we might be thinking, gosh, she's so young, she left school so early. But, in fact, she was very privileged to attend school of any kind. Most girls in the 18th century, if they were educated at all, were schooled at home by a tutor or a governess. Only girls with the familial and financial means sent to convent or seminary schools. But regardless of their schooling location, girls were truly at an educational disadvantage. While boys were taught some of the basics of science, math, and other useful skills, girls were taught only what was deemed appropriate for them in order to make them appealing for marriage. Basic reading, writing, poetry recitation, musical skills, dancing. Sometimes art particularly the womanly medium of watercolor or even pastel, would make a cameo appearance in school curricula. All of this was really only to snag a man. That and having babies were seen as the only true purpose of a woman's life. But clearly, these were not Elizabeth's true goals. No. After she completed her schooling, she returned to her family's home in Paris, thrilled at the prospect of continuing her artistic training. She spent the majority of her days in her father's studio, learning from his craft and experimenting with his paints and pastel crayons. Her father sincerely adored her, and he lavished his attention on her. This was a marked contrast to her mother who, though she truly loved her daughter, visibly acted with a warmer preference towards her son, Elizabeth's younger brother, Etienne. So it's understandable that Elizabeth was crushed when her father died suddenly in May of 1768 and left her without her greatest supporter, teacher, and ally. As she wrote, quote, So heartbroken was I that it was long before I felt equal to taking my pencil up again. Luckily, Elizabeth's mother was wise enough to recognize that art was her daughter's best means to work through her grief. So she encouraged her to visit the galleries at the Luxembourg Palace to study and copy from the great artists there, Rubens, Rembrandt, Gruse. During her early teen years, Elizabeth improved so quickly that she began to garner attention from some of the most prominent Parisian artists of the day. One of them, Joseph Vernet, encouraged her to continue her training by only two means by studying from the old masters and by studying the natural world around her they would be her two greatest teachers and from there her artistic style grew and developed naturally by the age of 15 elizabeth vijay lebrun was successful enough that she was able to contribute significantly to her family's income by painting portraits by commission. She received a rather lucky break when she was summoned by the Duchess de Chartres to paint her portrait, owing to Elizabeth's frequent spying-slash-scouting of the Duchess on her frequent walks through the gardens of the Palais Royal. The Duchess was kindly towards the teenager and hired her. And who knows if she had actually heard of the girl's talent or if she was just being generous. But it turned out that the girl could actually paint really, really well. And so the Duchess told all of her friends and her fellow courtly ladies, who then subsequently sought Elizabeth out in order to commission her to paint their portraits. Soon, the artist's meager home studio was a hub of frequent wealthy visitors eager to be memorialized in oil and canvas. Besides her obvious talent, Elizabeth had a few other things going for her. The first was that she herself was a beautiful girl. She had lush, shiny brown hair, deep pools of brown eyes, and one of those perfect rosebud mouths. Her looks certainly didn't hurt her, particularly when it came to the opportunities to paint portraits of well-connected Parisian men. This turned out to be somewhat of an aggravation for Elizabeth, though, who, at that time, didn't want the attention placed on her face and her body, but on her artwork. However, if her beauty brought more commissions through the door, so be it. Let them think I am pretty, she thought. More seriously, though, she had something else going for her that would very much influence her work and her future commissions, and this was that she was an uncompromisingly great flatterer. She used her convent schooling to true advantage here. Instead of displaying her charm and her wit in order to snag a husband, she turned them towards her clients. With compliments and a little bit of sweet talk, she set them at ease, allowing not only to make them comfortable enough to pose for her, sometimes for hours on end, but also to find her appealing enough personally to continue to recommend her to their friends. And that's just the verbal form of flattery. Perhaps more importantly was the second form of flattery, the visual kind. Vijay Le Brun became famous throughout her life for her ability to make all of her clients just that much prettier or more handsome. With her paintbrush, she made sallow faces turn rosy and youthful, weak chins were strengthened, and large noses became somewhat more streamlined. All in all, she was able to constantly distill her clients' visages down to their essences, and then she improved upon them. Not enough to be considered an inaccurate description, but enough to make a sitter feel rather good about himself or herself. And in a world before the invention of photography and capturing one's actual likeness, the oil portrait was king in terms of the preservation of one's existence and as a means of self-promotion. So when you find someone that makes you look better than you actually do in real life, you're going to want to hold on to that person and tell everyone you know about her. Elizabeth soon became the talk of the town, and members of the highest ranks of society requested her services. But life for Elizabeth wasn't perfect. Though she was making a credible and decent living through her work, her home life was still shattered due to her father's death. Out of financial need, her mother had remarried, and Elizabeth's new stepfather was a brute who began squandering Elizabeth's earnings. So instead of helping her family and herself, Her money was going nowhere but into the hands of her stepfather. So it was at this time, in her late teenage years, that Elizabeth began seriously thinking of a way out. That opportunity came in 1774 when two significant events took place. The first was that she was elected to the Academy of St. Luke, one of the painter's guilds throughout Europe. In particular, the Academy of St. Luke was especially enjoyed by artists who were unable to access the prestigious and selective Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, which at that time very rarely admitted women. This gave Elizabeth's career more credibility and respectability, as well as allowing her to work in an official capacity. It turns out that she had been considered an illegal business holder previously, as she did not have an official Painting Guild affiliation. This newfound affiliation also led to the second big event of 1774, which was her meeting with a local art dealer and connoisseur named Jean-Baptiste Pierre Labrum. As you can guess from his familiar surname, he was the man who Elizabeth would end up marrying two years later in 1776. Let me save you some curiosity and tell you now that this marriage for both parties Was mostly out of convenience and not a true love match. Elizabeth wanted, more than anything, a way out from under her stepfather's shadow, and having her own household would have given her much more control over her finances. Plus, her mother strongly persuaded her to follow the route towards marriage, for stability, sure, but mostly for money, as she was under the mistaken assumption that LeBron was a wealthy man. And on LeBron's part, he was surely hoping to benefit monetarily from Elizabeth's burgeoning career, since he wasn't as well off as others would have believed. This would later escalate into a squandering of funds that echoed Elizabeth's stepfather. It seems that with the men in her life, she just couldn't win. About marriage, Elizabeth was rightly very torn. And in her memoirs, she wrote, "'So little did I feel inclined to sacrifice my liberty, that even on the way to the church, I kept saying to myself, shall I say yes, or shall I say no? Alas, I said yes, and thereby merely exchanged present troubles for others. Of course, Elizabeth wrote the previous statement with the wisdom of hindsight. She obviously could not have known at the time that her marriage was not going to be pure bliss. And really, at the beginning, Even with the full acceptance of it as a marriage of convenience, her union with Lebrun proved to be beneficial to her career. First of all, Monsieur Lebrun took his new wife around Europe, particularly to Holland and to Flanders, or present-day Belgium, to continue her education and study of the great Dutch and Flemish masters, particularly her old favorite, Rubens. But most importantly, as a prominent art dealer, he had access to the very top of Parisian society as well as to the art world in general. How better to further your artistic career than with those two doors swung widely open for you? And we certainly can't forget that this isn't the 21st century that we are talking about. It is the late 18th century, and women didn't have the same access, education, and abilities afforded to their male counterparts. It feels awful to admit and sexist to say, but Elizabeth may have benefited from her husband's access in order to become the painter we know today. But knowing these sexist limitations just makes her accomplishments, and particularly what happens next, all the more fascinating. Two years after Elizabeth officially became Madame Le she received a rather shocking but very welcome request. Could she please come, at her earliest convenience, to Versailles at the request of Queen Marie Antoinette? The Queen's mother, Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, had requested a full-length portrait of her daughter and so, for this official commission, Marie Antoinette could have complied and gone with one of the usual court painters who served her husband, for example. But she made an independent decision to instead choose a young rising star in the Parisian art world, the woman who was known as Madame Lebrun. She definitely had a fair reason to make this decision. As she wrote to her mother in November of 1776, quote, "'Painters are like the death of me "'and drive me to despair.'" She was so devastated by poor and unflattering likenesses that she knew she needed someone really great for this important familial request. She needed someone who could flatter. She needed someone who could make her look even better than in reality. She needed Elizabeth Vigée-Le Think of how revolutionary this request must have been at the time. Instead of trotting the path assigned to her, Marie Antoinette broke free and made her own choice. And it must have felt, to her advisers and courtiers, like a risky move. Madame Lebrun was a portraitist on the rise, but she surely wasn't a known entity at the court, not really. And second of all, she was a woman, for goodness sakes. You can almost hear the derision and the unfounded concern in the courtiers' voices. Would Viget Lebrun's work be any good compared to that of her male counterparts from the Royal Academy of Painting? Marie Antoinette wasn't concerned in the slightest. In fact, she had already enjoyed Vigée Lebrun's work firsthand, as her brother-in-law, the Comte de Provence, had already been painted by Elizabeth. And there was also the fact that the Queen knew that Elizabeth was of similar age. In fact, they were both born in the same year. It isn't hard to imagine that having a painter of one's own age and gender would make for a much more comfortable experience as well as a possibly more beneficial one. Could Elizabeth, Marie Antoinette wondered, paint her in a more flattering and pleasing light, understanding her on a different level as wife, woman, and a mother, if not a queen? Marie Antoinette was right not to worry, because Elizabeth surely knocked the commission out of the park. The official portrait, titled Marie Antoinette in Court Dress, was sent to Empress Maria Theresa, who loved it so much that she immediately wrote to her daughter to tell her so. Marie Antoinette herself so enjoyed the picture that she immediately requested a replica made so that she could hang it in her own chateau. And various other replicas were sent around the world to other royal courts. One was even sent to the US Congress. The painting, per the Austrian Empress's request, presents Marie Antoinette in full regalia draped in a silvery satin dress with a full train and an even fuller skirt. Seriously, that thing is huge. She's portrayed in full majesty, standing nearly spotlight in a room filled with heavy drapery, thick carpets, and one toweringly huge column. If there ever was a very queenly portrait of the queen, it is surely this one. So pleased was the queen then that she made Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun her official court portraitist. One painting was all it took, and Vigée Le Brun's life changed forever. Elizabeth's memoirs include some truly beautiful writing about her relationship with the queen. Years after the queen's death, she wrote lovingly of Marie Antoinette's beauty and grace, which in itself shows an extraordinary devotion particularly when Marie Antoinette's beauty was never something that was particularly celebrated. Of her, the artist wrote, quote, Marie Antoinette was tall and admirably built, being somewhat stout, but not excessively so. Her arms were superb, her hands small and perfectly formed, and her feet charming. She had the best walk of any woman in France, carrying her head erect with a dignity that stamped her queen in the midst of her whole court. Her majestic mien, however, not in the least diminishing the sweetness and amiability of her face. To anyone who had not seen the queen, it is difficult to get an idea of all the graces and all the nobility combined in her person. But the most remarkable thing about her face was the splendor of her complexion. I have never seen one so brilliant And brilliant is the word, for her skin was so transparent that it bore no umber in the painting. Neither could I render the real effect of it how I wished. I had no colors to paint such freshness, such delicate tints, which were hers alone and which I have never seen on any other woman. Throughout the 1880s, Elizabeth completed multiple royal commissions for portraits of the Queen, as well as smaller commissions for portraits of the queen's children. And then, like others had before her, Marie Antoinette happily recommended Elizabeth's service to her closest friends within the royal circle, thereby ensuring Elizabeth's livelihood. And once Elizabeth started officially painting for the queen, everyone from the upper crust wanted to have their portraits done by the queen's official portraitist, too. From that point forward, the Le Brun couple, as well as their only child, a young daughter named Julie, lived in high style. But that didn't mean that Elizabeth was going to sit back and rest on her laurels. No way. Thanks to the Queen's intervention, she sought and was allowed entry into the Royal Academy in 1783, which not only confirmed her status as a member of the upper echelon of French artists but also afforded her the right to enter her works at the most important state-run art exhibitions. However, like anyone or anything that has gained such a stunning amount of success and popularity, she began to face a fair amount of backlash from high-minded detractors. Surely, some were jealous of her talents, but many were derisive of her ability to enter the Academy at all, since her husband's career as an art dealer would normally have precluded her from entry. And, on top of it all, the Queen, a not universally loved figure in France, had stepped in to insist on Elizabeth's inclusion. And then, there was the painting that Elizabeth submitted as her so-called reception piece, a monumental work titled Peace Bringing Back Abundance. Many artists and critics considered it to be overreaching as the subject matter, which fell into the highest category of artistic production known as history painting, was traditionally seen as being under the purview of quote-unquote real artists. By which they meant male artists, first of all. But certainly not portraitists, who were considered lesser artists. But again, to her credit, Viché Le Brun's work stood out on its own merits. Well, maybe even a little too well. In fact, it was during this time that rumors began to spread that her paintings were so well executed that Elizabeth must have been assisted by another artist who, at best, helped her finish her works and, at worst, created them entirely. Because surely a girl couldn't paint this well, they said. This would end up being a theme that unfortunately dogged Elizabeth long after her death. And even until the latter part of the 20th century, some Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun works were still being labeled as part of the oeuvre of the neoclassical master Jacques-Louis David. In September of 1785, four years before the onset of the vicious and violent French Revolution, Marie Antoinette's reputation had begun to fall precipitously. She was never vastly beloved to begin with, owing to her Austrian nationality, because Austria was a sworn enemy of France for so long. But in the 1780s, she began to be seen as a spendthrift, and sorely out of touch. The king's court opted for a little propaganda and came to Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun with specific instructions. Paint a monumental canvas featuring the queen and her children as a way of restoring the public's good favor towards the queen. And what better way to do that than to show her as a devoted mother? Motherhood was actually all the rage at this point in time. Vigée Le Brun knew it. In fact, she had carved a small niche for herself as a portraitist to French noblewomen who wished to be depicted with their young children. Believe it or not, this was a fairly new concept, because prior to the 18th century, children were basically viewed as tiny adults and were expected to act that way. And mothering was seen in many ways as being a poor person's job. It was considered very low class to breastfeed, for example, so any child from the upper class or nobility was sent away to the care of wet nurses for their infancy, and most ended up being raised away from home for the first full years of life. It wasn't until the 18th century when the philosophers, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, began extolling the uniqueness and virtues of a so-called natural childhood that children began to be cherished as an integral parts of a loving, happy, and close family. Perhaps not coincidentally, the rise of the cult of childhood, as it was called, coincided directly with the rise of the cult of domesticity, which celebrated wifely and motherly duties as the true calling of a woman's life. Women, philosophers noted, should only stay at home and should never work. Raising children was to be their greatest duty. Elizabeth Viget Lebrun wasn't immune to the effects of these new modes of thinking. And as a woman who had not only had a successful career, but was also connected to the royal court, she was probably vilified by some men who perceived her as being outside of her supposed natural realm. As a move of smart propaganda on her own part, Elizabeth would create numerous portraits of her daughter Julie, as well as two completely gorgeous canvases depicting her embracing Julie. In a shower of maternal affection. These are two of my personal favorite works by Vigée Lebrun. Her aim, in part, was to say, see, I am an artist, and I am a mother, and I can do both very well. The monumental portrait of Marie Antoinette with her children, however, wasn't so successful. Technically, it is a tour de force on Elizabeth's part based on traditional mother and child images from the Italian Renaissance, and from my perspective, it admirably meets the goals of humanizing the reviled queen. But it's easy for me to look at Marie Antoinette's sad eyes and feel pity and sympathy for her. For the Parisians of the late 18th century, though, the damage had already been done, and no oil painting, regardless of its size and technical prowess, was going to change their opinion of the woman they referred to as that Austrian bitch. Of course she couldn't have known it, but Marie Antoinette's days were numbered, and as the months ticked even closer to 1789, public opinion continued to sour. Unfortunately, Elizabeth's connection to the Queen, the royal court, and the access that she received to the upper echelon of society also made her a prime target for slander and invasive diatribes. In July of 1789, Elizabeth had suffered a great deal of character assassination in the myriad newsletters and small presses of Paris. She had considered the queen to be a friend, and so when the mobs of violent and angry citizens marched on Versailles later that year in order to capture the royal family and instill them forcibly back in Paris, Elizabeth actually feared for her own safety. Her meteoric rise had been too closely linked to the monarchy and she too would have been brought down with it if she hadn't made a drastic decision. Thus, on October 6, 1789, Elizabeth packed up her daughter Julie and their governess, and together the three women fled under the cover of night to safer locales. We might be tempted to think that Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun's career was over, or that it was sure to go downhill now that she no longer had French royal commissions on which to rely. That Would be completely wrong. In fact, Elizabeth was supremely lucky to have gotten away from Paris and into exile. Not only did it quite possibly save her life, as well as the lives of her loved ones, but it ushered in a whole new clientele as the nobility of other European nations suddenly became fair game for artistic capture. Over the next 12 years of her life, she would move between Italy, Austria, England, Germany, Switzerland, and finally to Russia, where she spent a significant amount of time. And in each location, Elizabeth did what she did best. She charmed and flattered and wisely used her talents to continually serve her clients' best interests. She may no longer have had the ability to paint her beloved queen, and as we know, Marie Antoinette met her terrible fate at the guillotine in 1793 but Elizabeth nevertheless painted dukes and princes, ministers and musicians, writers, actresses, and ambassadors. As it had been in France, her reputation preceded her and she was celebrated around the continent for her beauty, brains, and especially for her artistic talent. Again, this isn't to say that things always went smoothly for her, but she had the smarts and the guts to make the right decisions to minimize the damages. For example, she desperately missed her home in her Parisian coterie. So, in 1792, she left Rome, where she had set up a very popular painting studio specializing in portraits of wealthy noblemen from Italy and abroad, who were enjoying the grand tour of the continent. She hoped to travel back to Paris, but was deterred when she began to hear the horror stories of the capital's streets running red with blood from almost daily massacres, foreshadowing the transition from French Revolution to the Reign of Terror. The monarchy had been abolished, and the king and the queen were both to meet their deaths the following year. Plus, Elizabeth was well aware that as a royalist, she was going to be considered a counter revolutionary, and thus was most likely to be taken to the guillotine herself. So, She made the logical decision to make an about-face and continue her self-imposed exile as she traveled first to Milan, then onward to Vienna, and finally to St. Petersburg, where she spent six of her 12 years away. Elizabeth's self-imposed exile soon turned official, meaning that her name was included in circulated lists noting her status as an émigré whose property left behind in France could be confiscated and redistributed. This posed a big problem, not necessarily for Elizabeth herself, but for her husband, Monsieur Lebrun. He had been living off of his wife's fortunes and good luck for so long that everything in their Parisian home basically had belonged to her. And so he stood to lose everything if he was still connected to her. For better or for worse then, he made the rash decision to divorce his wife in June of 1794, so that he could continue living in their home and amongst their finery. Not that it made a huge difference to Vige Lebrun at that point. When she settled in St. Petersburg, she quickly got to work and began to claim ridiculously high prices for her portraits. It is clear that some felt her prices to be practically exorbitant, and as one Count mentioned in a letter to a colleague, quote, Madame Le Brun is paid a thousand, two thousand rubles for a portrait, as one might pay two guineas in London. At the end of the 18th century, she had amassed enough of a fortune that she was able to rent her own huge apartment overlooking the gorgeous winter palace of the Russian monarchy. Not that the monarchy was very interested in Vigée Lebrun. Empress Catherine the Great was still alive when Elizabeth made her transition to St. Petersburg, and she took an almost immediate dislike to the painter, primarily because, well... She was French. But Elizabeth's lack of imperial commissions did not affect her in the slightest, as the Russian nobility welcomed her nonetheless. In 1799, Elizabeth was met with the first of several personal tragedies. Her daughter Julie had fallen in love with a man named Gaetan Negri, a French secretary to the Russian Count Chernev. Julie, against the wishes of her parents, married Gaetan in St. Petersburg, when she was just 19 years old. Elizabeth was distraught at the news, but her daughter was independent and rather stubborn, so there was nothing she could do to stop the Union. A few years later, in 1802, Elizabeth was finally able, for the first time since 1789, to return to Paris after her ex-husband had lobbied unfailingly to allow her to be granted re-entry and French nationality after living so long in exile but Paris had changed utterly since the dawn of the Revolution. We can only imagine that she probably barely recognized the city she so deeply loved. And then there was the relationship with her ex-husband. It wasn't full of animosity, exactly, but remember that there wasn't a whole lot of love there to begin with, either. Combined, these two factors incited in Elizabeth another round of wanderlust onwards she went again, moving between England and Switzerland and then back again to France, making portraits of the greatest minds of her day along the way. The Prince of Wales, famous opera singers, and writers like Lord Byron and Madame de Stael. In the early 1800s, Vigée Lebrun lost all of those who were particularly close to her. First, her husband, who died of cancer in 1813, And later her brother who died as an alcoholic in 1820 but the biggest and certainly most terrible blow came in 1819 when her only child julie died probably from complications of syphilis mother and daughter had had a strained relationship for a few years since elizabeth approved neither of julie's husband nor her friends and when julie eventually separated from her husband she began to fight with her mother over financial issues soon Elizabeth and Julie had stopped speaking to one another. And I've been unable to verify if the relationship was patched up before Julie's untimely death. But if there was a survivor, it was Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. She always transcended. She rose above her own class, her own education, heck, even her own gender, to become one of the most famous women of her time one who was able to independently run and manage her own finances, time, and affairs. And surely she knew this, understanding that she was in a truly fascinating and unique position. So, in 1825, she began writing her memoirs, which would eventually be published in two volumes, in 1835 and in 1837. In it, she not only detailed her life, beginning with her childhood and family life through her old age, but she also dedicated segments of it to her own instructions and details for artistic training. Essentially, it acts as a small manual for her theories on painting, on technique, portraiture in general. And from it, you can glean information about the methods she used to become such a highly sought after artist. For example, Vichy Lebrun wrote, before you begin, talk to your model. Try several different poses choose not only the most comfortable, but also the most fitting likeness for the person's age and character, so that the pose will only add to their likeness. And remember all that talk earlier about flattery and charm? Elizabeth directly speaks to the importance of this in her memoirs, writing, quote, you should try and complete the head, or at least the basic stages, in three or four sittings. Allow an hour and a half for each sitting, two hours at the most, Or the models will grow bored and impatient, and their expression will change notably. A situation to be avoided at all costs. This is why you should allow models to rest and aim to keep their attention for as long as possible. My experience with women has led me to believe the following. You must flatter them, say they are beautiful, that they have fresh complexions. This puts them in good humor, and they will hold their position more willingly the reverse will result in a visible difference. You must also tell them that they are marvelous at posing. They will then try harder to hold that pose. An artist that actually cares about the comfort art of her sitters, who knows the importance of their mindsets and how it could affect their experience as well as her business. No wonder she was so popular. I'd want to hire an artist like that. Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun's popularity continued unabated. She lived a long life, and was 87 when she finally died in Paris in 1842. But time eventually, and inevitably, marches on, and tastes and styles change with the seasons. By the second half of the 19th century, brushwork started becoming looser, colors brighter, as artists began shifting towards experimentation that would eventually bring us the impressionists and onwards. 18th century portraiture fell out of fashion, and for the majority of the generations that followed, Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun was forgotten or a totally unknown name. Ask anyone on the street, surely they've heard of Leonardo da Vinci and Pablo Picasso. But ask them to name a woman artist, Especially one that isn't from the 20th century, like Frida Kahlo or Georgia O'Keeffe, and they will probably come up short. And they're probably not going to pull the name Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun out of full air. Art historian Linda Nochlin, in the midst of the tumult of second-wave feminism, published an iconic essay in the journal Art News. It was titled, "Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists?" If you're a student of art history. You're probably nodding right now. This article aimed to answer the question stipulated in the title and elucidated the many reasons educational, gender based, so forth as to why, according to Nochlin, there haven't been any great women artists. But it seems to me, and I know I'm not alone here, that Elizabeth Viget Lebrun was and is a great woman artist. It also begs the eternal question what is greatness? How can you define it? If you define it simply by popularity, then that would mean that Thomas Kincaid, the quote-unquote painter of light, whose schmaltzy canvases you could buy at nearly every American mall, would surely be called one of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Sorry, fans of Thomas Kincaid, I don't mean offense. Or do you define greatness by financial success? Is it in standing the test of time? And what is standing the test of time, really, when art and culture are constantly being reappraised? Or does it just all come down to personal opinion? This is such a huge question, and far too big, really, for me to discuss here. But if we base greatness on any of these factors, then let me tell you. In my opinion, Elizabeth V. J. Lebrun is truly one of the greats. In a time and place that was hospitable to neither women, nor especially to women artists, Elizabeth did more than flourish. She soared. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, narrated, and edited by me, Jennifer Dassel, with production and editing assistance from Kabunki Creative. For images that relate to today's story, as well as links to further information about this episode and our previous episodes, please visit our website at artcuriouspodcast.com. I have some truly excellent book recommendations out there for you art history nuts who want to know more about Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, art in the 18th century in general, Marie Antoinette, and the French Revolution. So check out our website for those goodies and so much more. And for those of you who love hearing about artists directly from the artist, you'll be pleased to hear that Vijay Lebrun's memoirs, the entirety of them, is fully available online for free. I'll post links to this on our site too and in the show notes today. If you like the show, let us know. You can find us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. We also have a new Facebook page, so just look up Art Curious Podcast there. Do you have an idea or a request for an upcoming episode? Feel free to let us know that too. And most of all, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and recommend us to your friends and fellow art aficionados so that we can find more listeners and continue to share the juicy art love. Please check back in a few weeks for a new episode as we continue to bring you the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.